Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I am your host, Ian, joined by my co-hosts, Emily and Megan. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing this morning? Well, better than I have been, I can tell you that <laughs> right than you now. Have. I hear, Megan, <laughs> that there have been some travails. Oh, my goodness. You guys, I got so, so sick, like, like pukey sick. And was oh, trying to ugh. recover for the past couple of days, just laying low. But I knew this podcast was coming. And I'm, you know, I'm a good student. So I'm going to read Blame Miz, even as I am Miz. <laughs> Such dedication. I'm so Miz. I am Miz. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm laying flat on my back on my living room floor. And I'm trying to read this book. But my head hurts. You know how it does after you've, you've been ill. So my head is pounding and I'm resting it against the floor and I'm reading this book and holding it up above my head. Now, I don't know which version you guys have, but mine is the little Look at this thing. It's the little square block one from I don't know, Barnes and Noble or whatever. That weighs like a like two pounds. Yes, it is very small and it's very heavy and it's very slippery. And I'm gonna let you imagine yeah. the rest. That's <laughs> <laughs> just a workout all by itself. It How workout. many times did you drop it on your face? Enough that my head hurt more. And I had to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, no. I deserve, I don't know, some kudos and accolades for being here today, but I'm feeling much better. So, <laughs> well, welcome back to the land of the living. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. So, a lot of, a lot of Marius mm-hmm. in this section, Emily. Yeah, that, that was a great icebreaker. I was going to come with the icebreaker question. Has being poor made you great of soul or are you just a bad person? <laughs> <laughs> Poverty's in the mind, I think. Um, Didn't he say at one point it, it needed one more turn of the screw to make him a good person? Marius, it's like poverty is, is torture rack. And, and to a point, it'll make you a bad person. But one more turn of the screw and you'll be a good person. I just thought, what? Maybe I'm sick. Maybe I'm not understanding what he means here. <laughs> this is I, all very strange. I focused on the part where he said it It depends on who you are and your nature. And if you're poor and you have a bad soul, it will emphasize that evil. And if you have a, a grand soul, a good soul, then it'll just make you better. Huh. <laughs> I think there is a truth to it. Well, yeah, it, it, it's... I mean, the the point at which there's a truth in it, it's so pat as to be not worth observing, right? I mean, poverty is really, really hard. Hard stuff makes bad people do bad things, and hard stuff makes good people rise above. Like, that doesn't seem like as deep a comment as he usually makes. Okay, but he does pair it with this other very broad general statement. He says, humanity is similarity. All men are of the same clay. No difference, here below at least, lies in predestination. The same darkness before, the same flesh during, the same ashes after life. But ignorance, mixed with the human composition, blackens it. This incurable ignorance possesses the heart of man and there becomes, capital E, 
evil. So maybe an added layer of, I don't think I would say subtlety, but an added layer no, of no. intention <laughs> over the top of what he's saying. Ignorance, not only the the heart of man, what kind of a man he is, but also his lack of education makes him swing one way or the other. Yeah. What do we think about that? I mean, if it's a very bald statement, ignorance equals evil. And so if we could sufficient, and he's, I'm not elaborating here. He says this on the previous page. If we could educate everyone, all evil would go away. Right. Yeah. We, to educate man is to root out evil. You know, it's hmm. not, he's not alone in saying this. This is essentially what Aristotle and Plato said. Uh, and like, here it is in all of its bald faced honesty. If we could just teach people what to love, what is right, if they just knew in their intellect, then they would, would or even, good. you know, an education of the heart, then they would be fine. That, that this is essentially an education problem. And man, it just, I'm surprised a little at Hugo because I did think that he was going a little more in the direction of. I don't know, the the salvation of the soul of the of the broken soul or something like that. I didn't I took him to be having more of a theological conversation than a than whatever this is. Yeah, it definitely see I mean, and he has been, right? To be fair, there have been lots of theological conversations, meditations. Like for for Valjean, right? His whole story is about his soul waking up out of sure, out of ignorance, but out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light, regardless of his circumstances. And so I think he is after that kind of game, but it, it seems to take a step backwards into socioeconomic commentary when he's talking about Marius. And it was, a, I'm, I got to confess, a little jarring for me. I wonder if it's because Marius's development is, is set in opposition or in a sort of a foil relationship to his grandfather's state of mind and perspective. And, and to add to that, we have the characterization of Monsieur Mabeuf, the, the church warden that Marius is one of Marius's only two, two, two friends in this section. And what he says about him is he was neither a royalist, nor a Bonapartist, nor a Chartist, nor an Orleanist, nor an anarchist. He was an old bookist. Mm -hmm. I it's, love that. Which is great. It's, I mean, he's out of touch with people, which I think is a critique against his nature, but I thought that was a fantastic passage. I want to be an old bookist. Of all the ists, I'm that one. It lines up with what he's saying about Marius, right? Like the, the way to achieve a balanced, even perspective and the way to stay above the fray of political commentary, which swings wildly back and forth, you know, even in as short a time as a couple of years, is to be really, really, really into old books. Okay, but I don't think that he's offering that as the ultimate answer. I do think that Marius in this section and Mabuff have... A, a critical flaw in their perspective at this point, yeah. which is idealism of one stripe mm. or another. Okay. That doesn't actually, I mean, there's that passage that talks about how Marius, maybe he had found the truth of human philosophy. He, cause he looked at the sky all the time. Oh mm -hmm. yeah. He says, Marius thought he had, and perhaps in fact he had attained the truth of life in human philosophy. And in the end he had come to look at hardly anything but the sky the only thing that truth can see from the bottom of her well. And there's something beautiful about that. And elsewhere, Hugo says that being poor, having suffered, looking at the sky, you see God and looking at the people around you, you mm -hmm. see souls. And I think that's, that is essentially what Hugo is trying to 
to draw out in this story. But in this section, Marius is only looking at the sky and truth is the bottom of a well. It's it's isolated. It's is detached from I don't know, it's an ideal, right? It's right. not it's not human. It's not real in, in some way or like it hasn't touched down on the people around him and Marius has made himself aloof and I don't know, there's something very untouchable about the the well of truth. It's a fascinating dichotomy, though, because at the top of that same page, Hugo hastens to say that Marius has grown past having opinions, which are ideals rather than connected to human beings, into sympathies. And his sympathy is to the party of humanity. So on the one hand, you're right. He's isolated at the bottom of a well. Truth is is without connection to the people around him. But the ideal is moving in the right direction. He's no longer attached to a party. He's he his heart is towards people around him. So maybe mm-hmm. he's maybe he's on a journey and he's not to the end yet. Oh yeah, I think that's certainly true. Well, and I think that journey is is stirringly painted and true to life. I mean, watching watching other young people around my own age as we made it through college and and through the the period of time directly after school when everyone's trying to find a job or find a spouse or you know what have you, trying to become a grown up. Everybody as a senior in college figures they know exactly who they are and exactly what they're about. And they have discovered all of the world's mysteries and they are competent now to take life by storm. That wears off (laughs) and quickly in most cases. Right. And I think the first stage of that is introspection because you come up against the end of your knowledge that you've that your freshly acquired knowledge. Mm -hmm. You come up against the end of your capability and you think, oh, okay, so this is going to be harder than I thought. And so watching Marius walk through this was really poignant for me mm-hmm. because I know I know the feeling. I absolutely know the feeling. Yeah. I can't remember if it was you, Ian, or you, Emily, who you were talking about the absence of that theological conversation that Hugo seems to have been going on about from the beginning of our novel. And I, I found that crop up in a weird place when he's talking about Monsieur Mabouf and his influence on Marius and how Marius is drawn to him. He mentions that Mabouf is like a candle in Marius's life, put there by providence. And the way that Hugo phrases it is really interesting. He says, uh, Monsieur Mabouf was not in that event anything more than the calm and passive agent of providence. He had enlightened Marius accidentally and unwittingly like a candle somebody happens to bring. He had been the candle and not the somebody. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. I don't know. I don't know what more to say about that beyond I noted it as a consistency of Hugo. I'm appreciating that he won't let us forget the hand of providence, even as he dives yeah. into these social matters and you know shows his hand about political leanings or what he believes should be the solution to these problems around him in his society. He won't let us forget that theological line. And I am appreciating that. It's something I'm clinging to as we read. I think it's a very tricky line that's being walked because he, he, I'm beginning to think that that darkness, that the light lightens up, he really means it to be ignorance, not the natural wickedness of the human heart. Not sin nature. No, there's no kind of sin nature. Man is born into darkness. He's born into ignorance. And either he's left there and becomes evil. And then we get becomes into, appetite is the is way it, he puts it. Uh, is it the Augustine idea of of evil being the absence, be, being negation of some kind? Uh, um, it might it might start with Augustine. Aquinas is the one who develops Aquinas. it. Aquinas. 
well, I'm seeing that here, something like that, but maybe like even an even more enlightenment version of it where evil is, is negation. It's nothingness. It isn't necessary. Like, and that's quote unquote wickedness, but not like not rebellious sin. Just, I mean, I, I can't think of another word for ignorance, but like that it's something that can in the light that like comes in and illumines it shows the truth and then the person is fine like knowing the truth sets you free which is biblical but i don't know there's something this i'm a little uneasy but there's still. another yeah me too but there's another detail in here that that maybe addresses that it's on page 688 of my version it's talking about marius's rev uh reveries in this state of reverie, an eye looking deep into Marius's soul would have been dazzled by its purity. In fact, were it given to our human eye to see into the consciences of others, we would judge a man much more surely from what he dreams than from what he thinks. There is will in the thought. There is none in the dream. So I think perhaps there's a distinction for Hugo between the evil beget that ignorance begets and the evil of the human will. And maybe that adds a shade of nuance to what you're talking about, Emily. He's talking about two different things, perhaps. I don't know. That one section, he was very clear that I think that he would say the evil of the will derives from ignorance. From ignorance. Should we go to that section? We're we're referencing it as if everyone understood it, but maybe we should be a little bit more specific (laughs) about which section really got our dander up as a Center for Lit team. (laughs) Well, it it comes later, and so I don't want to skip over. We need to put a pin in Marius and come back to we him. Sure but this can. is in the patron Minette, right? I think this is the section where he's actually talking about this band of thieves and the underground in mm-hmm. Paris that doesn't really have anything else to do with our, our section. Well, let's yet, do it now but, and then we can go back and, and talk about yeah. Marius. Uh, so the idea the image he's developing here is that society is constantly being undermined. <laughs> you are above me, but I am always being <laughs> the you. underminer. <laughs> the is underminer. this an Incredibles reference? I'm proud of you. Go watch the Incredibles. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Incredibles, do it. And there's like three strata of mining, and it's like it's like the kind of mining that takes place in a war, right? There's the, the people are like trying to get under the castle wall, and then there's the people like trying to get under that mine so that that mine collapses, whatever. And the one immediately underneath society are like, we've been seeing them all over this novel. They are the philosophers. They are Ross. They're the people who are discontent with the way that things are going in society. And they're kind of like sparking the flame of like new ideas and progress. And he says there's a whole bunch of different stripes of this. So, like there's different tunnels that are built, whether that be like economics or sociology or, or Christianity. Or right? Christianity. The, in fact, the opening metaphor he uses is the catacombs in Rome. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Which is really funny because he wants to spend most of the section talking about the evil that is under the in, in the Paris sewers, more or less. The the under the criminal underworld. Why does he then begin by saying underneath Rome is where the the light was sparked that would light the world. Well, I, yeah, it's like he, he thinks that this is a necessary correction to society's ills that there's this mining taking place immediately below it. But then if you dig too deep, 
<laughs> then you end up in the third strata, which is the people who are not after any kind of progress or they are after themselves only. Mm, yeah. And they are discontent for selfish reasons. And they are like the Tenardiers. They are the, this group of four villains that he paints the portrait of. And they are the reason that the progress, the second strata never get anywhere. Mm. And it's in that section that he has this conversation uh, in chapter two towards the About end. ignorance and evil. Mm-hmm. Before that, though, he makes another really bald claim. For the sum of all work done there, there is one name, progress. Right? So the ultimate good for society is progress. Only because there's some there's some ill to society that's never been corrected. And it's an interesting... It's an interesting dichotomy. Like he does seem to be hopeful that the progress could work, mm-hmm. but the ills of the society go all the way back to Horace. So this is an right. ancient problem. A human human problem. society. Well, yeah, I I want to believe that Hugo sees that it's a human problem and not just because we've been stupid and haven't been educated correctly yet, or something like, or haven't lighted on the right socio socioeconomic organization or something like that, but. I don't know. I don't know either. I, I, it's a fun tension to walk around in with him because he hasn't been clear yet. I really don't think he has. I mean, <laughs> there, there was all sorts of hope at the beginning of our novel. What he was going to deliver is some sort of essentially, essentially religious reading of society and its ills. And I think we want that because that would mean that this is a universal, right? This is a theme that that is not specific to Hugo's time. It's relatable to all humanity, regardless of when you find this book. That's why we want. He's not just writing about France in the aftermath of the revolution. Mm -hmm. He's writing about humanity in all societies and cultures across the ages. And yet he was very clear with us at the beginning that this is a story about the 19th century and about how education of women and Mm -hmm. children and the elimination of of poverty would really fix the century. Hmm. Did anybody else think it was odd that his image for the evil of society is a cave? Did that draw out any mm. any Plato Plato's cave references <laughs> for you guys? People trapped in their own opinions and watching shadows on the wall rather than going out into the light and seeing what's real? Yeah, I, I totally see that reference in there. And I think it applies equally to Marius's grandfather mm-hmm. and to the villains that he's describing down in the sewers. Yeah. That's a kind of prison that the human mind makes for itself. Mm-hmm. Speaking of prisons and things, there was another really interesting line where he talks about how the soul in moments of duress rises up and sustains the body, sustains the person. And he said it's the only kind of bird that sustains its own cage. Oh, yeah. I noticed that, too. Which I think is a really beautiful, is a really beautiful image and makes me think that that we can trust him. Right. Like as he as he goes into these socioeconomic conversations and writes specifically about the France of his era, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like he still wants to talk about what makes a human being a human Mm -hmm. being and what makes a happy one or a fulfilled one or a holy one different from an unfulfilled, grubby. Evil one driven by appetites. Let's allow that conversation to move along a pace. Wait till we get some more details to talk about it some more. And let's do some plot because we get some great plot in here. Plot that I thought was actually kind of funny. Marius is, well, tell me if you guys agree with this characterization. Marius has retreated into a form of indolence. 
Yes. Um, he describes this progression as he as he willingly takes on poverty in this fight with his grandfather. Also, by the way, some weird time leaps here. He kind of jumps back and forth a bunch. What the only yeah. concrete detail we have is that it's been about three years since last episode and this episode. <laughs> it's been about three years, and over that time, he has successfully received admittance to the bar and is a lawyer. However, he's decided not to actually work. <laughs> as a lawyer and is instead still working on this literary editing job that his buddy got him back in the beginning, which now pays just enough that he can eat the same thing every day and have two suits of clothes and live in the cheapest hovel he can find. And the effect of that poverty when it was necessary was to broaden his soul and make him sympathetic, as Megan said, to the plight of humanity and drag him down off of his idealistic mountaintop. But now that it is by choice rather than a necessity, it is simply a young man stopping his work too soon. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the forms of sloth, Hugo says. Right. This struck, this struck fear into my young man's heart. <laughs> because how is one to know? Right. I mean, it's, it, seems like, it seems like no matter where you go, and apparently in all times and places, as much then as now... The sages look at you and say, there's two kinds of people, rich ones and lazy ones. Which one are you? <laughs> right? Mm. Like, <laughs> Although, and he seems to be saying that a little bit. I think he is, but I think it's in a, it, this part did not smack of despair from Hugo's tone. It didn't seem like. It seemed really fatherly and twinkly. In the very next line after the part that you're quoting, he says, it was clear that for his energetic and generous nature, this could only be a transitory state. And that at the first shock against the inevitable complications of destiny, Marius would awaken. So this inevitability of destiny. So that hand of providence is not going to leave him here in this position. And partly it's because of his nature, which is both energetic and generous. When he has someone else to look out for or love, he will be the best. The better part of his nature will be called forth. And partly it's the fact that he's on his own that lets him be indolent. I think that's totally true. And we're about to watch his horizons broaden right. in exactly that way as he falls in love with Ursula. Well, an unnamed, an unnamed <laughs> Ursula. girl. Ursula. Hugo goes back to his own oh tricks. My goodness. So funny. Why does he do this? It's so funny. He's always dropping Valjean into a scene and it's clearly Valjean and not telling us <laughs> like it's a big secret. He just gives him a, ner- a new name as if he's being really, really tricky. I do think it is some kind of... I've been reading a lot of Evil Evil and Wa lately, and he does this too. The the disappearance of characters and their reappearance under new identities. So, like you know, for Jean Valjean, it's Madeline, and I feel like someone else for a while, yeah. and then like he's always leaving and coming back, and like this time it's LeBlanc or whatever. And the the effect of it is to show the instability of his identity. Mm. And whether or not that's a that's a like a good kind of instability that he there's some kind of essential thing to his character that it doesn't really matter the the facade of it doesn't really matter or it's a tragedy that there's something he hasn't really landed in some kind of like firm place yet hmm. I don't know but the effect is to make him a very unstable character I was thinking about and I can't I haven't drawn this all the way out yet so maybe you guys can help me but. He, he goes to characterizing love because because what happens to Marius here is that he falls 
woefully, <laughs> hopelessly in love with this girl whose name he literally doesn't even know. He's never spoken to her. And it's a little comical, right? This is the part that made me chuckle. And the way he describes it is that it's a it's a disaster, right? It's yeah. basically he has been claimed by this this force that is completely outside of his control and that does with him what it wills. And there's only two options. You have to endure the torture. And if you're being tortured at the hands of of an uncaring person, then it ends in the death of your spirit. And if you're being tortured at the hands of a good one, maybe it will end with some kind of consummation. But either way, you are absolutely screwed because now you're in love. It's a grave illness. Yeah, it's a grave illness. And <laughs> and so I'm looking at it and thinking, OK, this is funny for starters. This is a great depiction of puppy love. But again, there seems to be a distinction between romance and love. And if we look back to Fontaine and her experience with uh, Ptolemy's. Oh, yes. I, I wonder if those two things are in conversation with each other a little bit. I love it. Me I too. wanted to talk about Fontaine because I actually was thinking of her when we were reading about Marius's response to poverty mm. and how it strengthens him and makes him better. And it really is like rising him up and like, man, how much of that is due to the fact that he's a man and hmm. like Fontaine, like that was not the case for Fontaine's experience of poverty. <laughs> my thought about it was a little bit more calloused, maybe. I think that's a really good insight, and I, we should go with yours. But my thought was, poverty's good. Only a little bit of poverty, though. <laughs> I mean, he, he, has liter he has literally enough dollars to feed himself, literally. Like, there's literally enough dollars. There aren't more than enough. There's not even one sou more than he needs but we to don't sustain see his actual physical selling life. selling his teeth. Right. Yeah. He's not selling his teeth. He's not freezing to death in a garret somewhere. So so poverty is good, but only a little, only a little poverty. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, I thought that was an interesting comparison. But back to your original question, I, as Megan mentioned the cave, I've been kind of chewing on that. And I wonder if we're kind of seeing something like that happening in Maris's character right now. Because at the beginning of our reading for today, he has no other people around him. He's isolated himself. And like the one like goal of his life is to find Tenardier and basically to like bleed out for him to find he this wants villain to sacrifice himself for this guy and like he has none of the details he's idealized this guy into like the hero that saved his father's life and he would do anything for him and like that's the love that occupies his mind and as readers we know that that is like misplaced very misplaced but it's like he's drawn out and then like the next stage is what you were talking about Ian like this ideal he has idealized Ursula this <laughs> but can you imagine him sniffing and sleeping with Valjean's <laughs> yeah, handkerchief it's so funny you're like future father-in-law's handkerchief so good <laughs> also how do you mistake the one smell for the other I mean goodness gracious but it's at least like we're one step further. Like it's a person he can see. It's a person whose eyes he has actually like looked into. Right. Even if he is making idealized conjectures about her. I just love the the humor keeps getting better and better. It's such a farce because as they pass each other in the garden, they have fights even. I mean, they're like having conversations yeah. with their <laughs> eyes and all of that's very funny. But then like the wind will blow up her skirt and he's so, so mad at her. He's in For like five days. He's so, so mad. <laughs> oh my goodness. The name of that chapter is amazing because the like... I don't know. My first reading was like, oh, Marius is just being so jealous. And then this like veteran walks by and he's like, oh, my goodness. He saw because he winks at him. And I was like, he did not see it. But then if you revisit the name of the chapter, it's chapter eight of that 
section. It's even the invalids may be lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Also, I hesitate to to bring it up because it seems a little bawdy. But I brought um, it up, Ian. Lean in, man. Well, when he's talking about what 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 chapter was it? Chapter eight? Well that's Uh, the invalids invalids may be lucky. lucky, Yeah. Yeah, of book six. yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was their first. Quarrel. It even seemed to him that the old cynic, as he hobbled along nearby, had given him a merry fraternal wink, as if they had some chance understanding and had shared some happy bit of good fortune. What had this relic of Mars? Love that relic, relic of, of Mars. Mars. That is just that is so articulate and Dickensian of him to describe this guy this way. What had this relic of Mars seen to be so pleased? <clears throat> what had gone on between this leg of wood and the other? <laughs> I think I think that's a penis joke, friends. I did not notice. I think that. that's what that is. Oh my goodness, Hugo! Exa- I I read it and I stopped and went, Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> that is just wow. That's funny. Oh man, but it's all again. It's all like in his head. None of this is really happening. It's like that killer song. <laughs> like he's just imagining right. that this is happening and nothing has really gone on he doesn't he doesn't actually have any involvement in the situation that can pull him into that marius that we know that he can be well and your comment earlier about this whole description of marius and his development i think it was you megan that said it was hugo was being very fatherly about the whole thing i think that's totally true because uh, obviously all the things that marius is doing are perfectly clear to valjean Who's well, 60 years old has been around a minute and it's looking there and going, oh, okay, so now we have a young pup chasing my, chasing my daughter. Question though, is it that, <laughs> is it that he knows that this kid is after his daughter or is he afraid that he's like a agent of Javert's? So I wondered that too, but then Hugo hastens to clarify that one day Valjean goes to the garden without Cosette and mm-hmm. Marius goes, um, like okay. he makes a mistake. A blunder. He shows that it's Cosette he's interested in. And then Valjean takes right. the next step. So it's Man. very subtle. Yeah. That's because he moves. Like once Marius finds where they live, like he, he literally picks up and moves house. And that seems like a very extreme reaction to a young suitor. As, a, like, as opposed to if it was Javert, that makes more sense. you know. But that he only moves after Marius goes up to the doorkeeper and asks for his name. So now he's actually uh, pressing into your identity and mm-hmm. and Valjean can't have any of that known. So it, it did seem like well, a logical progression. I wouldn't be shocked to find that those two impulses in Valjean end up at odds with one another or confused with one another in his own head and heart. That's a that's a very novelistic move to to take concern for Cosette because of their safety, the two of them, and they're being pursued and they're on the run and confuse it with. I would rather keep my daughter than let her go. Right. That's a conflict that I can see coming. Yeah. I don't know that we're supposed to trust Valjean implicitly forever. I think he may have some, I mean, he's a human being too. We've seen his flaws before. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What did you guys make of this description of Marius falling in love on page 706? It says the glances of women are like certain seemingly peaceful, but really formidable machines. (laughs) Every day you pass them in peace with impunity and without suspicion of danger. Then comes a moment where you forget even that they are there. You come and go, you muse and talk and laugh. Suddenly you feel caught up. 
It is it's all, over. all over. The wheels have you. The glance has captured you. It has caught you no matter how or where by some wandering of your thought through a momentary distraction. You are lost. You will be drawn in entirely. A train of mysterious forces has gained possession of you. You struggle in vain. No human sucker is possible. You will be drawn down from wheel to wheel, from anguish to anguish, from torture to torture. <laughs> it, it's funny. No, sure. no, keep reading. Keep, keep, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> you, your mind, your fortune, your future, your soul, and you will not leave the awesome machine until depending on whether you are in the power of a malevolent creature or a noble heart, you are disfigured by shame or transfigured by love. Okay. Funny, yes, but like I, what I noticed is um, like the struggle in vain, the movement down. It sounds like he's describing Les Miserables, that we that this image, the downward spiral, the struggle in vain, the drowning, the humanity crushed under a the wheel, cogs of a wheel. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. Like he is describing love as being one of the miserables. Hmm. Interesting. What do you make of that? I don't know what to make of it. It seems pretty clear. I, I wonder if part of what it is to be the miserable is to be to be committed without your without your choice, really, to be uh, what's the word I'm looking for? To be loyal, but also to something at the that, mercy of something. Right. To be loyal to something you're at the mercy of. Right. I mean, this is the way he he tr- talks about his country. I am French and I love France and Paris is the seat of all good things in the human world. And it is a cesspool completely full of the blackest kinds of ignorance and evil. And, and so to be associated with it is at once the ultimate pride and nobility and the ultimate torture. It's kind of funny that he would turn and use the same terms to talk about romantic love, but He's lining up alongside a lot of great poets <laughs> over the centuries talking about the torture of being in love. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. But it seems quite serious to me. What do you like, think, Emily? That, well, I'm just I'm chewing on it. I don't know that I have a complete answer, but it does seem the at least what it does for me is it makes it so that the miserable people like in answer to previous, like the beginning of our discussion, this is a clue to me that they are not an evil to be solved or a problem to be solved, but it's a fixture of what it means to be human, mm. this suffering, and that the suffering, just like the poverty at the beginning, on the other side of it is if you are in the hands of a of a noble creature, not a malevolent savage, if you if you are actually in the hands of someone who will love you back, whether that be a woman or a benevolent providence, then on the other side of it is going to be like the, the most fulfilling thing of what it means to be human. And if you translate that to the conversation about poverty and, and misery and suffering in the social sphere, then that's a, that's an interesting thought. Hmm. The only way out is through. Not, but not even that, like, sure. But, that um what's on the other side is a is a reward that was that you could only have gotten if you had gone through the misery hmm. well it isn't clear that there's any kind of reward in the offing for marius at least when we <laughs> when we end our section for today valjean has picked up and moved house <laughs> marius is despondent well there is actually more <laughs> more hope than that unless i read too far doesn't he see him dressed as a worker no that's too far Ah, 
<laughs> we were supposed to read through book seven, right? Yes. Okay. Maybe I read a couple more little sections. I don't know. It all. It. I dropped the book on my head a couple of times. Really <laughs> Missed a chapter heading. Kept reading. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think that he? I mean, I'm sure we're going to learn more about this in our next reading. But this is the interlude with the the thieves that we just talked about earlier. That's a weird transition that he's making here. Uh, it made me fear. Made me fear for my life because what I have heard about this book for a long time. And here we are halfway through and it hasn't happened yet. But what I've heard about this book is that we are going to get impossibly long and detailed discourses on the, the layout of the sewers under Paris. But and this felt like the opening salvo of that <laughs> lecture. Yeah. Although I was encouraged, though, because maybe it's not just going to be architectural descriptions. Maybe there are going to be people down there. Maybe we're going to follow a new band of thieves and get to know some people and there's going to be more action. I just assumed it would be long and plodding and lots of, you know, poopy tunnels. <laughs> lots of poopy tunnels. <laughs> I think we found the title of this episode. <laughs> lots of poopy tunnels. Uh, we'll save it. We'll save it for the episode that actually has to be about that. <laughs> okay. Just uh, to wrap up the my, like, confused train of thought from earlier, the light conversation and the ignorance and being, like, enlightened there is something hopeful and universal. Like if we're looking for something universal and not just for an enlightenment idea that's already been debunked, there is like the light that enters Marius's life is love. It's not knowledge. It's not like being confronted with some doctrine or truth that he grasps hold of. What's opening him up right now out of darkness is another person. Mm. And so when we turn to the thieves and their darkness and the fact that they are like they are the shadows in the cave and they like blend into the darkness, perhaps Hugo is saying they don't like sure they need to be educated out of this. But maybe one of the tools of education is love. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I like that a lot. Although I will, I do hasten to point out that he doesn't know anything, literally anything, including the sound of Cosette's voice. Well, I guess he's heard her speak, but she hasn't spoken to him. So whatever kind of love he is interacting with right now is far from grounded in humanity. It's still very much the love of the ideal. But uh, ideas have consequences. There I go. I've, I've made the full transition into being my mother on the air. <laughs> um, ideas have consequences. So... So yeah, I think the progress of that of the thing you're talking about, Emily, has definitely started for Marius. I think it's a continuation of that journey that we were talking about before. He's moved from having opinions to having sympathies, and now his sympathy is towards not just the idea of humanity, but now the idea of an individual. And I think he's named Ursula. Yeah, he's on the way to knowing a real person named Cosette. But for now, at least he's <laughs> focusing in that that energy and that generous spirit on an individual. I think that journey is moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an, ex it's an, an expansion of his mental world and of his circles, right? I mean, he knows like four people. Now he knows four. Yeah. That's better than three. Also, just for the record, I mean, different times, different times. She just turned to 15. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also convenient, I thought, a little convenient that she makes the full transition from months. ugly little beggar to ravishingly beautiful woman. I mean, like, look, I understand that the that the flower of of womanhood is is transfiguring, 
right? Mm-hmm. And that the transition from an awkward te- teenager into a beautiful woman happens quickly sometimes. That does but not happen at 15. No. <laughs> 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 you Some days I'm beautiful. still wondering if it's uh, happened to me. <laughs> but but I think that I mean he went to lengths to convince us that whatever beauty Cosette had was in the spirit because she was ugly. She was well, I was going to say thank God that she is beautiful because everyone had looked at her before and said, well, at least she'll always be ugly. That's I mean Jean Valjean yeah. thought that the the mother of the uh, convent thought that. Everyone thought she was just going to be uggles her whole life. She proved them wrong. In <laughs> six proved months. The providence proved them wrong. All at once. Because that's Poof. like, hold my beer. <laughs> hold my beer. I got this. It's like a uh, like new year, new me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, according to Hugo, all you need really is white teeth. So maybe she just got lucky. Yeah, the standards are pretty low. <laughs> standards are low in that era. White teeth, sweet breath. Right. And she has luxurious brown hair yeah plot twist Not blonde every adaptation has her with blonde hair and have you noticed that every adaptation has fontine with brown hair they mixed it it's the other way around, other way around people come on now guys i wonder if it's because everyone's like well because that's supposed to be this light so we have to make her thematic. as light as possible well i know but like here's hugo <laughs> the king of symbols and and thematic renderings of people i wonder why she has dark hair is it so that she can be a contrast to Valjean, whose hair has suddenly turned white in a shorter time well, than six months? <laughs> they do. Uh, the men of the ABC start calling them Mr. White and Miss Black. So it's like it's a little bit as though Mademoiselle La Noire. The colors of the world are changing. Yeah. <laughs> day okay, by day. All right, all right. That's enough. <laughs> That's enough. We the obligatory musical reference is off the table. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you both for your insights and thank you listeners for joining us on our journey through Les Miserables. Let's hope it doesn't make us all miserable. We're not. We're not miserable. Off into the I'm sewers with you, I think is the appropriate, the appropriate send We don't know that that's Go coming now. next. Oh, to the poopy tunnels. I fear it. I fear <laughs> it. I fear the poopy tunnels are on their way. <laughs> There's no reason to fear because what I heard is that the Waterloo section is the longest digression. We've already been through the longest digression. Well, and that, that was, was a fun painless. digression. I kind of awesome. liked it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Hugo, we trust you. Thank you guys for being with us. And we will see you next time on how to eat an elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.